episode 43 with artist Kentura Davis. Welcome to the Institute of Black Imagination. I'm your host, Dario Calmis, an artist, writer, brand consultant, and generally curious fellow. And each week we bring you a conversation from the pool of black genius to inspire, engage, and help you unleash your own imagination. Today's episode is with contemporary artist Kentura Davis. Exploring language, looms, and listening beyond the Lyman, Kentura's work reminds us that identity requires an intimacy with the unknown and oftentimes hidden portraits of ourselves. Growing up in Altadena, California, Kentura's parents cultivated a natural environment for her to play with black genius. As a set designer, Kentura's father led the family out for days of painting and discovery among the hills, and her mother, a quilt maker, taught Kentura to sew at an early age. Exploring the artistry of both mediums, Kentura spent time in Accra, Ghana, working in fashion design and later returned to the States to pursue visual art, eventually earning her MFA at Yale University School of Art. Inspired by language and perception, Kentura's most recent work challenges us to slow down, consider our own limitations, and what exists beyond the realm of form and letter. As described in a recent LA Times article, and I quote, the work of Kentura Davis is a lesson in seeing. Each encounter with her work reminds you that true sight is a discipline, a practice, You might be drawn into her kinetic, large-scale drawings because of her subjects, which look familiar, but there's always a standing invitation to stay a while. Her technique, meticulous, patient, layered, demands a sustained gaze." Today's episode is rooted in the power of our identity outside of language and what we withhold from one another in plain sight. Discussing topics that range from the diminishing value of a Master's of Fine Arts degree to urban planning and design to Toni Morrison's essay, The Sight of Memory, this conversation is one that holds our hearts in an audible essay on the shadows of life and living. Be sure to share some of your thoughts on today's episode with us over on Twitter and Instagram at Black Imagination. And if you want to make sure you don't miss another episode, hit that subscribe button. This and more content is over on IBI Digital at BlackImagination.com. And without further ado, the one whose talent we have yet to fully see, Miss Kentura Davis. Um, so we have a new question and I, and I really love it. Um, who would you like to dedicate this conversation to today? Oh Lord. Oh man. Um, I mean, right now I'm in a state of gratitude for a lot of people because, uh, you know, the year's been long for all of us. Um, I'd say, okay, I'm going to shout out uh, the most crucial pair because I can't name one and not the other, but my parents, (laughs) Um, 
who are I'm really close to and just the most fantastic supportive people um and they're right up the street so I'm they're always in a way hovering if not physically like some sort of uh energetically so yeah the pair of them the parentals that's beautiful and that is a delicious segue into this beginning which is about (laughs) your beginning um so tell us a little bit about Kentura. I know you are currently in Altadena, California, in your new studio, mm-hmm. which is very close to where you're from, which right. is Altadena. Altadena. <laughs> <laughs> in California. So like speaking about your parents, like what was it like growing up in Altadena and how did that landscape begin to shape the way you see the world? Uh, I guess Altadena, so Altadena is, you know, technically part of LA, but it's, it feels like a little town. Like it's, you know, LA is sprawl. So there's pockets of neighborhoods. One feels different from the other. Um, so Altadena is one of these little areas that, um, you know, feels small, um, but then accessibility to everything else in LA is, you know, everything's right here. Um, and it's right at the foothills. So there is some nature, although I dealt with some like funky allergies. So what, what should have been like an exciting time of hiking and all that stuff, like I didn't really participate in because um, hives and all that stuff. But uh, no, Altadena, you know, was great. Of course, you know, kids tend to not appreciate every their environment all the time when they're growing up so it took leaving to see um Altadena and LA a little more clearly so I guess it's played a role in the sense of like contrast with all these other interesting places I've had the opportunity to live in um but I'm back now appreciating the sort of small town feeling of this area uh also like connected to the um accessibility of all the other you know aspects of LA getting downtown I live in Highland Park my studio is in Altadena um but you know there's Hollywood there's the beach downtown everything has a kind of like different attitude which you know (laughs) (laughs) calling out my my um my um wonderlust um Uh (laughs) speaking speaking of wonderlust you mentioned that you had to leave in order to kind of really understand what had been there where where did you go well the okay the first place i lived outside of la was dc um I did a, I went to Occidental College here in LA and I did a semester program my junior year, um, which took me to the American University has the semester program in the arts. So I went to DC for a semester and really the furthest east I had been up until that point was Arkansas, which is where my mom is from. So it's like country and and at Los Angeles and a little bit of in between just getting there. So D.C. just felt so different. 
what, and one thing that became so clear is like how much the um, physical like attributes of a city, like the the way a city is designed, public transportation, how much a functioning public transportation system changes how you entirely how you socialize in a city. That became so clear, like being able to like ride trains. I'd never ridden a train in LA. Like there, you could count the number of trains back then. Um, uh, and so switching to a lifestyle where there was far more spontaneity, you, you know, in LA, you see people at your point of destination because every, you know, most people drive. Places like DC, New York, I went to for the first time while I was living there. Um, there's all this room for improvisation and spontaneity because you're seeing so many different people en route from one place to the next. And you, it's so easy to like change your plans <laughs> depending on who you encounter and moving around. Uh, the museums were free. So I was at the Smithsonian. You know, I grew up in a creative home, but we didn't go to museums all the time. But having something like the Smithsonian where you can go, come and go as you please for free, that was also felt really different. Um, so in some ways, I like that maybe made me think what about what LA was missing. But eventually, it then opened up like, what does LA offer that's just different? Um, and so there's a kind of like intentionality with what you see and do maybe in LA that feels um, different, um, which I, I now appreciate. And what other places did you escape to? I shouldn't say escape. Yeah. <laughs> but maybe. maybe I, well, maybe, at the time, maybe. I felt like it was an escape. I moved to Africa, honey. Um, <laughs> okay, let's get into it. Uh, so, you know, after undergrad, I, I actually moved back to D.C. Um, because I loved it so much. And then, you know, I was struggling, like, broke, try, like, trying to piece together a life, working part-time at a gallery, part-time at a bookstore, um, then my grandmama died, and I was just like, you know, that's the final straw. I'm moving back home. Moved back home, and then, uh, you know, eventually got to working. You know, I still had every intention of being an artist, but, you know, of course, had a job working full-time at this uh, print atelier here in L.A., and so I was like, you know, selling art by day, making work by night, um, and then I that job was challenging for many reasons, but there was really great things about it, but um, I had to get out of there. And when I left, I bumped into some friends and uh, one of whom was uh, design a clothing designer. She started a clothing line with her business partner, Ose Duro, which some of you may know. She was looking for a production manager um, in Ghana and I was like, sign me up. Um, so I moved there. And originally, it was just supposed to be like a six-month um, kind of contract. I loved it. They love the idea of not having to train somebody else. So six months turned into almost two years. And I stayed there until um, I applied to grad school from there. 
and got into grad school and that's when I moved back to the States. But I still go every year and now um, working on uh, getting, buying some land with uh, some friends of mine there. So, 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 so this is a very interesting, this, this kind of departure and delineation to Ghana, how, okay, first of all, let's rewind just a bit. Mm -hmm. You went to Occidental, Occidental College Mm -hmm. in California. What was your major? Well, I knew I wanted to be an artist. I did not necessarily want to go to art school. I did apply to Cooper, didn't get in. So Occidental was my top, um, second, my second choice. I shouldn't say that. It was right there. It was right there. And I'm so glad I did. But Oxy is a liberal arts college. I did major in art and minored in anthropology. Okay, but you said you did not want to go to art school. No, because I, I realized I wanted a liberal arts education. Like I just, I wanted, um, you know, broad. I wanted, a, I like the idea of going to a small school with, um, that wasn't necessarily like known for their art program. Mm -hmm. Um, and I knew I could do things like, you know, sociology, anthropology, like get into all these other fields that I would hope and expect would, um, inform the kind of work I'd make. Okay. Um, So you had every intention of becoming an artist. You just did not want to go to art school. Exactly. And when did that you know, this is a, this is a, um, a, an interesting question. Like when, if I do say so myself, when did your creativity, um, when was your creativity on purpose? Meaning like, you know, as, as children, you know, growing up, you know, we are playful, we are curious, but when did, when did it kick into like the third gear when you actually engaged it and did it on purpose. Um, yeah, wow. It's okay. So it's interesting. My dad's an artist and, um, he's a painter, but most of my growing up, he was a set painter in the union, uh, working in TV and film. And so we'd always get these little like window snippets into that life of making, you know, art for a particular person, but still nonetheless art um, on these sort of like grand scales. And so having, you know, and and my mom makes quilts. So having two parents that make things um, and into the analog, sewing, painting, painting. that was, it was always, it, I always felt supported in whatever creative things I was doing. But my dad used to take um, my sisters and I out to paint, like plain air painting. So we'd go around like Altadena, Pasadena, and sometimes other places with a little like kit of um, like watercolor paint and him just showing us how to like draw in perspective. And so it was kind of like, it was always there, but I'm the one who clung to it. 
So it stayed with me. And then I, you know, I did have a kind of like, you know, whatever they say about like a natural kind of ability. And, you know, I did what a lot of us do, like copying animations that we love to watch. So there was that, there was a lot of that, but that felt at the time really intentional of like keeping the sketchbook, drawing freaking, you know, I'm almost embarrassed to say like Little Mermaid. <laughs> I, for whatever reason, I distinctly remember the Little Mermaid. Prince copies. Eric could still get it. <laughs> my first Absolutely. crush. Oh my God. After but, George um, Michael. And, right. And then even having other, a couple other classmates that um, could draw too. And us, I don't know, it almost felt a little competitive, like who could draw better. <laughs> this was in like middle school or something, but um yeah, there were there, yeah, there was that. And then on the occasion of going to museums, I was really interested. So um I never and the funny thing is I never I we didn't have much in the way of art classes. In high school I did like uh, maybe eleventh or twelfth grade, I did take an art class, like a printmaking class. Um at this art center here in Pasadena. So that was like the first real intentional um, art class, which is maybe why I didn't feel strongly about going to art school, because I just didn't know what life was like being, um, having a schedule full of art classes. I had my parents, we did creative things at home and didn't really feel the need to have a more structured kind of situation. Hmm. And so kind of fast forwarding a little bit to Ghana, you know, post um, undergrad um, and you're working as a production manager at like a like a factory um, for fashion. Um, what did that encounter with Africa do for you and what did it open up? Well, I, you know, I went, when I went, I was really open, you know, cause I, I having never been anywhere on the continent, um, I of course recognized the distance created by our systems here about like what Africa is supposed to be. And having had friends living there, I was like, I'm dismissing, I'm not clinging to any of those stereotypes. Um, and I really wanted to go open, um, in terms of what my expectations were. Uh, the one thing <laughs> that I was kind of surprised, where I had to like check myself was when I packed to go, you know, I'm, and I'm from California. So, you know, we wear cut off shorts and, you know, t-shirts and, you know, we try, I try and jazz that up, but, it, you know, casual culture here, you know? And I didn't take a single dressy item of clothes. It was all, you know, casual and, you know, or beach wear, or, you know, coastal wear, what I, what I thought um, was cute at the time. And I went there and, man, these people dress, you know, like the suits, the, the up and downs just, and I almost was kind of embarrassed at the lack of options I had, like no single, you know, and I, I don't wear high heels a lot but you know just no single like really like nothing close to not necessarily formal but like really jazzy like I didn't bring anything like that and I was like what was I thinking 
Um, the other thing I was surprised about was how it actually reminded me a lot of LA in some ways because I was uh, I was in Accra, which is the capital. Accra is on the coast, so you know two coastal cities. Um, Accra has a kind of I'd say a laid back vibe to it, um, and traffic's bad. Um, air quality in pockets are bad. Uh, there's sprawl. So it's like neighborhoods, um, you know, disconnected neighborhoods. And there's just like a variety of kind of lifestyles you can encounter. Like if you want the more metropolitan feel, you can have a little bit of that. If you want the feel of like more, I don't know, bush for lack of a, a better word, um, that's, you can get that too. Like there's a whole range. And so that was really interesting, just feeling like it didn't feel that distant from home or that um, un, that dissimilar from LA in, in many ways. Um, but I, I went there feeling the need to up my, my own style game. So of course, what one of the great things about being there is like, you know, people still get clothes tailored and it's not inaccessible. So you go buy some fabric. Me, I would make a little sketch of what I wanted and um, work with a tailor to get some really cute-ass outfits together. <laughs> and and as, um, you know, and as an African-American coming in to the continent, how did that affect the way and maybe what you understood yourself and maybe even shifted your idea of blackness? I feel like that's like an on... So the, my answer today will probably be different from uh, next year and different from what it was two two years ago. It's an evolution because I what when I got there because there's a lot of expats there, and um, I guess you know I would see some expats feeling like a sense of. Um, entitlement and maybe like know-it-all type of thing that I wanted to avoid um, because I am, I'm an outsider, you know? Like the great thing about like Ghana, English, not, I won't say great, I take that back, that's not the right way to put it, but it's accessible to me because English is uh, the official language. There's many other languages spoken. I was trying to learn some tree for a little while. I, I don't do great with picking up new languages, but I had tried. But at, at any rate, um, I wanted to go, you know, like I wanted to be humble there and just learn. Um, and as a part of the diaspora, you know, what I do love and appreciate is how welcoming everyone there is and how willing they are to help you sort of navigate. Um, when I, because I went for work, it took a little while to get outside of the expat community and really make deeper connections with people who are there, there, like that's home, they're Ghanaian or um, from other regions in West Africa. Um, but once I did that, made that really um, deepened the experience there. Um, so, 
you know, a lot of my friends are artists and creatives. And, you know, it's a mix of expats and um, uh, people who are born and raised there, but I'm mostly creatives. We all kind of stick together, which is beautiful. And there's a really, you know, that the art scene has really blossomed. I mean, there's there's uh, people who have been around, like, um, working for generations, but there's, you know, a new crop of artists coming through and everybody just um, seems really engaged. And so it was nice to kind of um, find my way into that community of creative folks. And from there, you said you applied to to grad school, which was yeah. at Yale University right. um, to get your MFA. What um, what made you decide to want to pursue an MFA? I... I was uh, I was going back and forth because having been in Ghana, because I was making my own work too. So I did my first sort of large scale mural there, um, and you know finding opportunities to show and participate. Um, so I was like, you know, I, and I'm still convinced there are many ways to have an art to be a professional artist, and um, I didn't feel like you have to go through the MFA programs to make a life as an artist. Having even examples of somebody like, you know, my dad, who, you know, his version was working in TV and film. Um, And then even, you know, developing his own business, doing like graphic design and all this stuff. So I knew there was many ways to do it. I actually really love school and um, love an excuse to like go to classes and like focus on topics and all that sort of thing. I was in my mid-30s by that point, or no, I think I was 34 when I decided to apply. And I was like, I'm going to pick whatever I thought were the top schools at that point. Apply. If I got in, great. If I didn't, that's fine too. And I probably wouldn't have applied again if I didn't get in, to be honest. But um, I got into two of the three schools I applied to, Yale being my first choice, and um, yeah, ended up there. I actually did my interview um, <laughs> in a crop. <laughs> we were at this, I was at this uh, beach, and the internet was bad, so I had to go to the nearest hotel and get on their Wi-Fi to do my interview. Um, but yeah, got in, and then uh, several months later, moved back to the States, to Connecticut. And and could you describe your work like prior to, you know, getting into Yale and then what you pursued once you actually got to Yale? <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, I'd say all from er- the earliest age, like I'd, I remain fixated with making images, figurative images. So portraiture, like that's where it was at. There was, after undergrad, I I would have called myself a painter. Like through undergrad, I was painting portraits. And after um, the bachelor's and I was just trying to like figure out what I was doing, I was super dissatisfied with the paintings, quit painting, actually quit kind of making art for a hot minute. And just, you know, I kept a notebook and eventually found my way to making these text drawings. Um, And so even prior to grad school, I'd already began working with language and themes around like 
how we absorb meaning and processing that through making these intricate drawings by either writing or stamping a text in repetition. Um, when I decided to go to grad school, again, I went in wanting to be very open and, because what grad school, what I wanted grad school to afford me was time to do things that I maybe otherwise wouldn't try given the pressure of like paying the bills and like what, what are people, what kind of work are people gravitating towards like feeling the pressure to like make portraits in the way that I, I had been making them. So um, I went there and almost the whole, nearly the whole time made everything but portraits. Uh, I was making sculpture um, and uh, there was a moment early on uh, I had a studio visit with one of the faculty, um, Sophie Ness, and she knew I was interested, like just thinking through text. Um, and she knew that's the other thing. Coming out of Ghana, uh, that opened things up in a way that I didn't necessarily see at the time, but the weaving culture there, like I was interested in fact, in, in textiles, just through like mom making quilts growing up, me sewing, and then working there in fashion. Um, but never quite clear on how that might influence my own work. Um, but uh, I was talking with Sophie and she was like, well, have you ever tried weaving? And I was like, well, no, you know, I know how to sew, but never weaving. And she was like, well, maybe you can think about like text and the relationship with textile. And so etymologically, text coming from a word for woven, that just launched me into this whole other landscape and really opened things up. And so I started making these um, little weavings, and eventually I scaled up to making these huge looms to weave with, um, but they didn't, it didn't just have to be threads, it could be all sorts of things. And so thinking of textile as, in a more metaphoric sense, as like a material that captures everything. So like even we use, uh, like, we, we can say something like the fabric of society. What is that? Thinking through what that means and why we even use forms of textile and fabric as metaphors for how our society looks and functions. That was really interesting to me. So it became a sort of like, uh, material that captures all sorts of information. Um, so that's mo that's a lot of what I was doing um, in grad school in terms of what I was making. Uh, whoa! I'm so glad we're doing this interview because <laughs> <laughs> I'm learning shit too. So you know, you know, the reason I ask is because that's was my introduction to your work, right? Right. was through like sculpture and you know a bit of fashion and um and these looms and so when i you know came to visit you at yale um you know first of all i was just completely blown away by <laughs> these looms and you know you know the typewriters and movie projectors and like lanterns that you wove into these mm -hmm. you know quite massive looms um, but then, you know, you graduate and then all of a sudden <laughs> there are all these incredible portraits coming. I was like, wait, what? Like, <laughs> what? what, 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 what? Um, so we'll get back to, um, 
that kind of like 3D sculptural work, but like, let's get into this text mm-hmm. and text and like, you know, because so much of your work is text-based, like, and I totally did not make that connection between text and textile. Mm. Um, but what does text allow for? Why why is text so such a rich place for you? Um, well, I I think I've always been interested in like handwriting, like again, the analog. Um, I have uh I'd say I have really good handwriting. <laughs> um, and so, you know, I I still keep a notebook rather than like typing everything down. Um and but when I so that phase when I stopped making the paintings and I was just keeping the notebook, um, I was writing and some text overlapped with a little drawing, a little sketch that I did on the page. And it was this kind of epiphany that the um, quality of a written line is no different than the quality of a drawn line, ex- except with the written line, we've assigned meaning to a series of marks. And so originally it started just thinking about how we assign meaning to our sensory experience and thinking about like a mark is a mark until, you know, our, our, our writing systems are abstract until we've assigned meaning to it. And so thinking about that bridge of like um, meaning and the materiality of meaning in our world, like that was a really interesting space. And then because, you know, like you grew up in the church and um, the particularity of the black church I went to, um, they emphasize the significance of the word. The world was created by words. Um, Your words uh, enact certain things, like they have, energy or they um, pursue a thing that is otherwise abstract until you give life to it through words. Um, And other things that sort of like crept in was like when we, you know, those early museum experiences, like going to the Getty Museum and looking at the illuminated manuscripts. So it's like these early medieval texts where word and image are merged together. Um, and then thinking about like ha- being drawn to Egyptian hieroglyphs and how they appeared etched into stone um, or inscribed on papyrus. Um, but what I loved about the ones that are like etched into, you know, carved into stone, you know, there are these marks that um, are only visible because of their shadows. Now, you know, back in the day, they used to paint them. But, you know, it's just reliefs in the wall and people could read it. It's hieroglyph, hieroglyphs are, you know, we can now decode it. But for a long time, we did not know what, how to read that text. Um, so just thinking about how we um, materialize meaning and language over time and across different cultures, like that's kind of stuck with me. Uh, so beginning to make the um, text drawings, thinking about like how fundamental language is to who we are, how we understand ourselves and the world around us, like language um, helps facilitate that. And so could I make a, 
an image entirely by writing ideas that make us up. So it's like a kind of embodiment, a pursuit of embodiment with the drawings where all the marks on the paper um, have meaning and have something to do with the figure in the image. Wow. Um, you s <laughs> that was so rich. Um, first of all, thank you. Um, there are some things I want to pull out. Um, one almost circling back to your earlier phrase about, um, <clears throat> or your earlier story about being in Washington, D.C., and mm -hmm. the ways in which you easily saw how design changed your life, like literally mm -hmm. changed the way your body moved through space, right? And so thinking about the effects of design um, mm -hmm. in the built environment and in urban planning, um, and then mapping that onto this understanding of text, and meaning as design, right? These stories that we give these marks, right, are still like design elements, mm -hmm. um, right? Because they have been designed, they have been um, prescribed a meaning that then shape the way that we speak and the way in which we form our own schema. And, mm -hmm. you know, and looking at your work and taking these, these marks or these designs, you know, and almost subverting the original design in a way, mm. you know, by, by, by kind of stripping them of the meaning to make a new type of meaning, you know, but, but, <laughs> but what the result is, is figure. Right, right. And so, you know, it leads me to believe that in these figures, um, there, there is a, there, there is um, there's something that's saying that who we are, or who we think we are, or who we know ourselves to be, is also just a series of stories. Mm -hmm. right? Exactly, just an accumulation of information. Mm -hmm. Right? Mm -hmm. yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. What's what? How do you view the relationship between language and information? Well, I think language is a kind of information, and that's something, um, you know, those years in grad school helped me expand past just the written form, um, because, you know, I also am interested in counting for a kind of like oral histories, especially given my experience um, in West Africa, um, and just being tapped into a, a, kind, a different kind of ancestral knowledge. But uh, language is a kind of information, but um, ma especially making the objects um, help me broaden my sights to not just language, but perception in general. So we're perceiving our environment constantly all the time in ways that we're conscious of and in ways that we're not conscious of. So I think the way my work because you didn't really see the work before, the portraits before grad school. You saw the objects and then portraits post-grad school. And there's, in a way, 
in a way, in some ways it's subtle. The differences are subtle, but in, but in many ways they're, um, it, the experience of working through these different objects definitely expanded um, the portraits that I made after. Uh, off, often now there's like embossment in the paper. And so, you know, I mentioned shadows and we've talked about shadows in our prior conversations too. Um, but having something that's got um, a relief where it's not just reading the surface, it's not just about the surface, it's about surface and indentation and thinking about like words like impression. So impression being like a printmaking term in one instance, but also how we use that when we wanna say something has made an impression on us. So making impressions in the paper in a way to point to these conditions that make impressions on us seemed also significant. So making material decisions that in a way, I think sits parallel to what I experience in my body um, and things that I'm thinking about beyond language, how perception um, informs what we think about my, myself, my environment, other people, um, all that, you know, I'm now trying to account for mm. in the work. I don't know if that answered your question. Yeah, I mean, it, 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 it does because it, it speaks about... <clears throat> this you know again this kind of layering right this layering mm -hmm. you know and that and that is information right when you speak even about yeah. like the fabric yeah. but but like you know double tapping on that like so then what is the relationship you feel between like language and maybe even specifically the english language um because again if we think about design right and language mm -hmm. as design then what is that relationship between language and the soul and lives of black folk? That's a good question. I mean, or how does it impact really it good. or impress it? Let me stop. Well, <laughs> I'll let you answer on, the on the one hand, I mean, English is derivative. So everything has other, other roots. Um, and, you know, one thing I'm thinking, of, you know, since you're bringing up the specificity of like our subjectivity as black folks, there are things that are, um, you know, language is a system, but it's not fixed. It's ever changeable. And so what we do is we readapt, we ad in many ways we adapt to the system, but there's all, we can always pivot on it. So uh, it's a, about a kind of invention. Um, and I mean, I, you know, I'm so glad you asked the question because I, I only speak English. English is the only language I speak fluently, um, regretfully. But, um, you know, I do think about it often that, you know, and my work privileges the English language because that's the only language I have. Um, some other things have crept into the work, but for the most part, I'm like writing um, in English and 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 even sourcing um, English texts, although there's there are some that have been like translations. But um, I've been what's become really meaningful to me is like this realm of poetry um, or 
working in a working with texts in a more poetic way where um I don't know there's like brilliant people who have sort of um summarized what poetry how poetry functions in the realm of language um to be able to because language it doesn't it doesn't get to everything it's flawed and it cannot address everything poetry however does a pretty good job of trying to bridge some of those gaps. And so um, the series I started in 2019 called Blur in the Interest of Precision, which was actually a phrase from a Fred Moten text. Um, I've really been sitting with that um, because thinking about things that seem like they're opposite, but thinking about where dualities form, like where two opposite things touch and thinking about like liminality, the space in between um, and how that space um, you is not, you can't always articulate it, what's happening there. And so sourcing phrases, myself writing phrases that point to a condition that doesn't try and define it or lock it in or explain it to you um, coming up with these sort of like open-ended things, I think has opened up a space to account for the ways that language fails us um, and all the other things in that sort of in-between space between what we have um, in written language and for verbalizing and other forms of communication. And that was a beautiful show. That was actually the first show where I saw live these new portraits mm. um, mm-hmm. at Matthew Brown in Los Angeles. And, <clears throat> and I also love that title blur um, in the, is it in the pursuit of precision or in the, in the interest of precision, in the interest of precision. Um, you know, it's, it's like missing the mark in a way, but, but making the, but making the mark in the, in the process. Mm-hmm. Um, and speaking of text and the ways in which you not only incorporate text in your work, but are inspired by it. Um, I know you've mentioned um, earlier that Toni Morrison is like a huge, um, you know, influence and just reference and just a source mm-hmm. of, you know, uh, reconstitution um, mm-hmm. sometimes in your practice. And so I'm actually going to quote a little bit of Toni Morrison to like get us into our next couple of questions to kind of like guide us through. Yes. Um, and so this is, this is from her, um, essay. Oh my God, I'm drawing a total blank. Hold on one second. It's actually your favorite essay and now I've forgotten it. Sites um, of memory. That's it. Sites of memory. Yeah. Yeah. Sites of memory. I should have put it here in the notes. Um, (laughs) But she's she's speaking about here um, slave narratives um, Mm -hmm. and the autobiographical slave narratives and the ways in which those who are narrating didn't necessarily give full account of their interior life, but also did not want to. Um, be so so obtuse in their use of language that they would kind of make the aboli- the white abolitionists you know nervous or scared or put off. <clears throat> and so this quote she says, um, in in what they are saying in these narratives, one 
They're saying, this is my historical life, my singular special example that is personal but also represents the race. Two, I write this text to persuade other people, you, the reader, who is probably not black, that we are human beings worthy of God's grace and the immediate abandonment of slavery. With these two missions in mind, the narratives were clearly pointed. So in, you know, the ways in which these narratives were constructed with the audience in mind, um, how does the consideration of the audience come into the making of your work? That's, um, yeah, I mean, uh, I'm so glad you kind of framed it with the Morrison text because um, it's, you know, I think about like in terms of, you know, if objects have an orientation, like who, who am I oriented to? And, you know, one thing I, you know, I say often is I'm my first audience when I'm making the work because I'm there kind of witnessing it happen. Um, but it's, you know, I, I can think of my uh, late teen, early 20-year-old self in um, a white liberal arts school trying to talk about what my work was and leaning on um, things like, you know, uh, you know, ideas around like, uh, I want to show that black folks are humans too, or that kind of thing. But it, that kind of phrasing or sort of framing of work oriented to say, I'm making this to convince you of something, you who are not like me. And I, I am entirely allergic. You know, I've learned, I've, Toni Morrison taught me, you know? And it's like, who am I oriented towards? And I want to, you know, I'm facing people who I don't have to convince that I belong here. And so I am making, and it, it's not to say that like, there are, you know, there's still far too many people who think we don't belong. And yes, that is someone's work to um, try to educate those folks, but that's not me, right? Um, and it's, I mean, I guess a kind of making a decision to um, work from a place where that's um, a given. Like, I don't have to make work to, with the purpose of saying I belong here. Like I, I, that's assumed. And even, you know, even with like recently I did work around, um, you know, old texts around like the passing of the 13th amendment, but that was really, it was working through how we still, how those kinds of texts live on in our are in our embodied, but it's not, I guess my work isn't to teach. And maybe that's a short way of saying what I'm trying to say. Um, uh, that it's really a kind of, a, more about a kind of embodiment. Um, and so my choice of uh, subjects who appear in the work are people in my community. Some are close friends, others are like friends of friends who have come to know um, people I encounter 
when I travel, like the more brief encounters when I travel. Um, but uh, it's really focused on, you know, a kind of, you know, I think what you're touching on is like a contrast between interiority and mentioning the slave narratives. What's left out of those slave narratives are a kind of interiority because the objective was to persuade abolitionists who could, who or people who could support, um, you know, the fight for the ending of slavery, like to convince them or persuade them that this is important and necessary. Um, so I'm more interested in a kind of interiority. Um, you know, it's interesting because even um, the show that we did together in St. Louis, so much of that work, um, for those of you who may not know, um, I curated a show in St. Louis called Fashioning the Black Body, um, mm -hmm. starring Contura Davis, <laughs> amongst <laughs> others. It was a wonderful group show with Micheline Thomas and mm -hmm. Kendi Wiley and Jacoby Satterwhite and this lovely mm -hmm. human. But we actually built a house. We, well, we built we a frame house. Well, Contura did. It was a piece that I saw <laughs> um, in her thesis show at Yale and never left my mind. Um, but it was really just a frame. It was a frame of a house. Um, but you had these windows. You had these kind of windows or these portals that were filled with beads and wood shavings and, mm -hmm. you know, many things. And really speaking about this space of interiority. Um, and you also had the one garment piece, right. That was mm -hmm. hanging with the weight, with the mm -hmm. weight that was also like kind of seven pieces of garment, all made out of one, you know, piece yeah. of fabric. And also speaking mm -hmm. about this level of, of, of interiority. Um, so in speaking about that or bringing that to the fore, um, will you return like to sculpture, like will will this work kind of extend back out to the third dimension? Yeah, you know, it's it's always there, and I feel like um, there's work. So you know, that was that show was an opportunity to show things that um, I hadn't shown before, and I think making objects continues to be a part of the pra my practice um, and without the need to always show them um, because sometimes they're there for me and they help inform what does end, out, end up uh, finding their way into the public. But, you know, to speak specifically about the works in those shows, what... Um, and, and how they also, um, you know, in a way really touch on a, a lot about what the portraits are about is like thinking through what's revealed and concealed, thinking about the invisible, um, that there are always things we can't see or perceive, but are present. Um, so the house, you know, the house in a way, everything in a way is sort of comes back to the figure and um, uh, so like the house, uh, a house can be a metaphor for a, a person, um, it's a vessel, like my body is a house I live on in, for example. Um, and uh, even the garment as a kind of 
uh, a shell for the body um, and the person inside the body. Um, and so with the house, I was thinking, you know, the icon of a house needs simple, a very simple set of forms. It's usually kind of a rectangle with a triangle at the top. And so just thinking about language systems or logos that we create that very quickly get point to what we're talking about. Um, so sort of like the signs and semiotics of sculpture, right? So making this house that had minimally what is necessary to suggest that it is a house, but it didn't um, really protect at all because it's so open, it's just the frame. And what something that came out of that experience making those massive kind of weavings, sculptural weavings is, you know, we normally think of a textile as this like thin membrane but I don't know if anyone has ever tried to take apart, like pulled apart a knit, anything, any kind of knitwear. You start pulling that string and it becomes just this massive pile. And so something that seems so um, discreet and minimal or singular is full. So finding fullness where we otherwise wouldn't necessarily see fullness. So a wall could be full of information. A window, in the case of the house, could be full of material. And so something that would otherwise just be something we peer through and not acknowledge its own sort of possibility for thickness. <laughs> um, it's like making fullness where otherwise we wouldn't find it. Um, and then the house itself being quote unquote empty it's not empty, it's still, it's full of air at least, you know? And so acknowledging the invisible and acknowledging that, you know, a frame is still enough to make a volume um, that can be full or that is full um, was interesting. With the garment, you, you ask, you know, you ask about how I might be coming or continuing to work through these forms. The garment has further life. Um, so to elaborate, it's like a garment that's couched with six other garments. They're all connected. Um, the outermost layer is opaque. It's actually made out of Tyvek, which is, you know, interestingly enough, a material that's used to cover houses that are under construction, or structures that are under construction. Um, and then uh, the inner layers get more and more delicate. What's invisible are all the sort of intricate treatments of the fabric. Um, there's beading inside, there's quilting inside, all these things that someone wouldn't necessarily see. And it's not even important that someone sees it. And I'm saying it, but it's not even important that someone knows what's inside and that there's all these other interior layers. And so that's actually part of the reason for the scale and the weight to acknowledge as a way to point to this garment is more complicated than you might otherwise think because it weighed about seven pounds. Um, so, you know, projecting my ideas around the figure, we encounter people all the time, but only see a surface. And it's through a sort of duration that we begin to like 
see and perceive other qualities of figures, people that we're interacting with. And so in a way, it's a metaphor for our encounters with other people, which is always first superficial, and we may never know the inside. And making objects that account for that, um, that um, distance and the journey of arriving at intimacy. <laughs> Come on, Gendora. Yes. <laughs> no, you speak about it so beautifully. So beautifully. Thank you. Um, and I want to actually kind of pivot to like your process, right? So, you know, these portraits are are masterpieces. Um, and I know also just just work, right? Like, like, like just mm-hmm. just te- like tedious, like incredibly intentional detailed work how do you approach a new piece like yeah how do you approach a new piece Mm -hmm. I could just stop there yeah I mean I work usually in series so I'm thinking about how we're using language in a particular way and that decision to focus on a specific way we're using language determines how I then make the portrait so um, a lot of uh, a lot of them are uh, is a matter of layering. So handwriting a text in repetition to build up the information, or um, I have these rubber stamp letters so I can stamp out a text, and it's just a matter of um, writing, uh, stamping, building up that information to to the appropriate tonal value. Um, to render the figure. Uh, what I should say is um, the portraits start with the photograph. And I mean, you being a really amazing photographer, you know, I for a long time I took that process for granted. And it wasn't until I took a photography class in grad school that I really gave myself time to think about like what the medium itself offered. And again, in that class, I didn't even, I hardly took any portraits. It was like taking images of like strange shadows and long uh, long exposures at night um, that sort of capture the ephemera of the space that you wouldn't otherwise notice. Um, so that then led me to experimenting with long exposures and making the portraits. And so those capture a duration of time. And I kind of had another epiphany recently of like, the long exposure is a true motion picture because where motion pictures we normally think of, they're a sequence of individual images um, strung together and um, playing very quickly, you know, 60 frames a second, 30 frames, whatever. The long exposure captures all the information that happens in that span of time that the lens is open. So in a way, like a true motion picture, because it's all, all the information's there in that one single frame, right? Um, So accounting for the passing of time in those images. And given that the, what they eventually become are these text portraits um, that uh, besides duration, there's sort of this destabilization of the image that parallels the destabilization of categories that I'm pursuing with the text that I'm using to write them. 
Um, so that's one way, one approach. And then recently, not recently, but for a while I've been interested in um, making these sort of relief uh, uh, images where the text, rather than writing and layering, the text is um, impressed into the paper. Um, so there are these low reliefs. So like think of ancient Egyptian reliefs, um, for instance. Uh, um, and then I do these rubbings on top uh, to render the figure. And because the text is sort of sunk into the paper, the pencil skips over. So it then kind of highlights the text wherever the figure lands. Um, so you, the text becomes even more legible where the figure is. Whereas outside of the figure, it's nearly invisible until you get up close to it. Amazing. Um, so that's it. Yeah. So it's just two ways. So it's it's kind of the inverse of the other text drawings where it's the layering. Instead, it's like embedding, embossing, and imp making an impression um, of the text. And really kind of goes back to that line you said earlier when you were speaking about the hieroglyphs, you know, carved into stone, that we can actually only see them because of the shadows. Exactly. And I know that there's something there <laughs> for us as well, right? Like, right. you know, it's it's our shadows that yeah. help us be seen, actually. Yeah. That's the mark making. It is. Mm. And we, I probably shared, I'm sure I've shared this text with you, but one of the books I was reading on shadows is called um, The Shadow Club, where the writer begins talking about... Um, his first time really paying attention to a lunar eclipse. And there's a beautiful line where he says, the shadow of the earth reveals the true nature of the moon, meaning that normally when we see the moon, it looks like the sort of glowing lofty orb in the sky. But in the earth's shadow, you know, you need a telescope to see it well. But um, in the shadow, you notice it for what it really is, which is this massive rock. Um, and you acknowledge its weight. And so thinking about shadows, you know, we think about light is the ideal condition to see, but shadows can also reveal. And so shifting what we think about these different conditions, like shadows, not just a place of mystery and hiding, but it can also reveal. And so with these embossments, the fact that the shadow is required to see some of those texts means it reveals. And the fact that where I do render the figure with, you know, this sort of like black pencil, it's this blackness that's revealing the text. Um, so blackness is illuminating and revealing um, in ways that we know that parallel these ideas that we've talked about in terms of like more radical uh, forms of thinking. And um, so, yeah, that's kind of the, the space that I'm at where destabilizing the kind of conventions that we have, like light, you see, darkness, you don't. Light, good, darkness, bad, you know? Um, shifting those um, sort of binaries. You know, I'm gonna actually dive back into Miss Toni Morrison to yeah. cue us up uh, for the next one, but, but really on your process. And she, in here, she's speaking about hers right essentially like what her writing process is like 
And she says, and from the same essay, by the way, by now I know how to get to that place where something is working. Hold on, I'm going to read that again. By now I know how to get to that place where something is working. I didn't always know. I thought every thought I had was interesting because it was mine. But now I know better how to throw away things that are not useful. Um, and so I want to ask, like, how do you know when to let go of an idea in the studio? Um, well, you know, the environment that helped me was grad school because you get thousands of opinions all the time and you can't listen to them all. So many of them conflict with each other. And um, that was a really interesting space to think through um, what matters to me. And so I think it, there's some significance in like honing in on the thing that matters that helps you edit, helps me edit and make decisions about what, what should stay and what should go. And I'm always, you know, I sort of alluded to it um, um, in terms of making the work. Like, everything I make um, is not necessarily for other people to see. Like, I don't, I'm not always making things. Like, you know, I like the idea of making things that no one will ever see. Or very few, you know, or people who are have the privilege of coming into my studio <laughs> um, may only see. So, yeah, you. Um, so that's, uh, um, I like having that freedom of not feeling the pressure to show everything. Um, and even, you know, lately with the couple of shows I've had, I was really striving to make more work than I quote unquote needed so that I could edit back and make decisions and not just like put everything out for the sake of um, needing to fill, fill a space. Mm, mm. Um, <clears throat> and what do you want uh, to make possible for black individuals to see or imagine through your work? I guess it's like, um, I love the idea that there's, um, again, going back to the idea of like not being oriented toward an audience who needs to be explained things, but um, oriented instead towards community that um, we share and agree in many things. But I guess, um, you know, I love when there's some acknowledgement, some acknowledgement of like, uh, like insider knowledge, like not everybody knows, can know everything. And even with, um, you know, the, the show I just had um, uh, at my gallery, Matthew Brown, there are these weavings. Um, and I worked with, a, I made this paper thread and worked with a uh, Kente Weaver in Ghana. Um, and so there are forms and signs in those weavings that aren't legible to everyone, but it is legible to a specific community. And so just having, um, I like making work that 
reveals itself at different levels to certain people and especially um, uh, pockets of black folks can find something there that they know um, is like between us kind of thing. Um, and of course, you know, you know, we have a lot of the same friends. And so I love like our mutual friends seeing the homie in, um, in some of these images too. So that even makes it smaller, like having, making a small world, the world is small and it keeps getting smaller, but within it, there's also, you know, it's like, I think of it as like a cosmos where there's different, um, sort of plant where planets on different planetary paths and sometimes in the revol what is the term not revolution but in the paths that we're moving in we intersect with different folks at different times and that's always happening and um, so I think the work is a site for intersecting and identifying things that um, we recognize amongst ourselves mm. hair even hair you know my you know uh, I love rendering hair, black hair. Love it. And so there's a, also always the kind of acknowledgement of like, yeah. Sorry, that wasn't articulate, but. <laughs> no, that's, no, that's <laughs> amazing. What's your favorite way to procrastinate? Oh, um, I take dance breaks sometimes because um, a lot of the things I do is repetitive. So uh, when I'm here alone, I, you know, I'm a night owl. So in the studio at night, I'm, I'm by myself. Um, uh, so damp, dance breaks are meaningful procrastinations, but I also find it's like it helps reset for continuing the work. Um, occasionally I'll get fixated on some show cause I, I hate feeling like I'm not in control. And so sometimes when I have a deadline, it's bad. It's actually, it's not good. It's not a good habit, but I'll have a, a serious deadline and I will carve out time to like sit and watch something just so I feel like I'm in control of my time and not just having to work around the clock. <laughs> True Scorpio. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, and so, I mean, speaking of time and like practice, how do you negotiate like, uh, like a romantic relationship with your practice? And I know at one time it was also with like another artist even. So, I can only imagine. <laughs> I don't know how to answer that question today. Um, well, you know, I, I'm always of the mind of like, and I think this is evidence of me saying what I just said about carving time to like sit and do something else when I'm under pressured to work. But you can make time for what you want to make time for. And I really feel that. So if, the relationship is important to me, I will make time for it. So I don't let, I mean, work life, work and life is a blur. There's the distinction between the two is very blurry, if, if at all. Um, so it's always mixed. And I mean, you know, the great thing about like, you know, being with um, an artist is 
all that bleeds together and you can have conversations all the time from like regular everyday stuff to the work. Like it always ends up that way. You're talking about the work, then the next minute it bleeds into something else unrelated and back and forth. Um, so I, I really enjoy that, but I, you know, I, yeah, I make time for it when it's, uh, somebody, um, that deserves it. Okay. So if, <laughs> If um if so if Contura does not text you back, um, <laughs> oh, no. just know that you are not worth the time. <laughs> yeah, I'm not gonna be the girl. You know, I'm. But that's the other thing is like I'm also good at being single. So if it's just if it's something I can or whatever reason don't want to make the time for them, it, for me I just use, read it as like this maybe isn't the right situation. So, yeah, no, I, w- I want to make time for, for someone who's at that level of intimacy in my life, you know? Boom, hit it. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> well, before we wrap up, um, Kentura, I just want to, first of all, thank you um, for gracing us with your delicious presence. Um, and also just thank you for your friendship. You're oh, one of I'm my- honored favorite favorite conversations to have um it's been such a beautiful journey to to watch your career i mean i literally thought that you were just like a fashion designer with like too much to say and so you had to go to art school (laughs) i was like she'd be amazing i mean you you did design Uh, for thundercat like you made a coat oh yeah i made i made a for his album cover for him yeah yeah. yeah, but I was like, mm, she has too much to say. Like, she's over here <laughs> on some other shit. Um, but I also just want to, like, just acknowledge this tireless work as well. Um, I know it is not easy. Um, and I know it comes with many things, um, including probably a very tired arm <laughs> with mm-hmm. the repetitive. And re- bags under my eyes. My God. <laughs> It's but, the it's the bags yeah. under my eyes that give my age away. <laughs> oh, stop, stop, stop. Um, but you know, your perceptivity, your kind of endless curiosity opens up so much, so much to not only black perceptivity, but also like the lives that we lived. And 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 through that, you are giving voice to those interiors, to those interior lives that, you know, although we as a people maybe on the shell are judged or put into some kind of category like, you know, a house, even when we're not exactly a house, um, Mm -hmm. you know, but you give voice to those inner layers, those inner layers that that language, even language cannot touch. Mm Mm-hmm. And so for that work, one, thank you. And two, I am so fucking excited <laughs> to see this development. Um, oh, so, thank you. so thank you. So um, I have one last question. Okay. What is the world you imagine for the future? Um... Oh my God, that's too hard. Um, well, 
I guess, okay, I'm going to answer it in my way, which is a world that doesn't feel singular, um, that instead feels like there's a clear multiplicity with no hierarchy. A world with no hierarchy is ideal for me. Okay. So it sounds like space. (laughs) Maybe. (laughs) It sounds like space, you know, wherever you are in space, you're in the center of it. Exactly. Exactly. Um, well, amazing love. Can Where can people connect with you and find out more about your work? Well, um, hopefully by the time this comes out, my uh, little website will be up to date, which is Kintura.com. I'm Kintura everything. So if you know how to spell my name, uh, that's K-E-N-T-U-R-A-H, then you can usually find me. So Kintura.com, Kintura on Instagram. That's pretty much it because I don't really mess with Facebook no more, even though Instagram is basically Facebook now. But um, that's another story. Uh, I'm on the Internet. Yeah. All right. Amazing. Love. Thank you so much. Have Thank a beautiful so afternoon. Yeah. You too. Um, and so we're going to stop recording. Okay. And I'm going to clap so that I know. Um, anyway, how you doing, boo? Girl, I'm okay. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you all so much for joining us today. This conversation was so rich. Kentura dropped so many incredible nuggets. What stood out to you? Let us know your thoughts over on Instagram and Twitter at Black Imagination. And be sure to check out our digital platform, blackimagination.com. Our identity is merely a collection of stories we continue to tell ourselves about ourselves. What old story are you holding on to? Stay curious and keep dreaming.